Jewish Money Matters, episode 237, Ask Yael. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to another Ask Yael episode. Before we pick a reviewer of the week, let's take a little bit of a look at this week. Monday, we had Daniel Geffen, podcasting entrepreneur. I highly, highly recommend this episode. It's uh, been a hit, apparently, amongst you know the social media followers uh, among you. Daniel shared so many powerful stories about his childhood, about his grandfather, a Holocaust survivor, his father, his own financial, Daniel's own financial challenges, etc. And it, it really, all those stories really made it a very memorable episode. Check that out. I think you really are going to enjoy it. And um, it's going to definitely touch your heart and move you in many ways. As I said on the episode, um, intro to the episode, we, we laughed and we cried the whole gamut. And I wasn't here last Friday. Apologies for that. So I'll also speak about last Monday's episode, um, which I thought was really, really insightful and helpful. That was on purchasing our first home with mortgage broker and personal friend Rich Bond. Definitely a must if you think home ownership is in the cards for you one day. Aside from having been super educational and informative, um, Rich was another guest who was very honest and shared his own story of losing it all and having to rebuild from scratch. I highly, highly recommend you check those two episodes. I think you will definitely benefit a lot. So before we go into the mailbag, let's check the iTunes review section and pick a reviewer of the week. This week, we actually have somebody who left a review and that is shall 31 E review from February 13th. Great podcast for the whole family. I started listening to your podcast and my daughter listens too, and we both enjoy it. Great perspective and understanding of Jewish values and today's markets and money matters. Thank you, Shal 31E. That was that's so great. I'm so glad that you and your daughter are listening. That is fantastic. It is so important for us to allow money to be a normal topic of conversation at home and to be open and frank with our children about this. So yes, I think it's awesome that you and your daughter are listening. Be in touch with me via email or DM on Instagram. My email is now yael at yaeltrush.com and my email is at yeah, I mean, my Instagram is at yaeltrush. Let me know that you are the Shell31E who left a review and I'll send you a link for us to connect on the phone or on Zoom. Looking forward. All right, one more announcement before we head over to your questions. So I haven't done an audience survey in a while and it's time. <laughs> you know how much, you know, I, I always like to do these surveys. And and like I said, I didn't know, like, I didn't do it for a while. It was COVID, whatever, everything we were changing. Um, but it's it's time. And I, you know, you already know a lot about me, I think, because you listen to me every week. And, you know, even though I'm interviewing people, I, I share so many bits and pieces. And, you know, and there's also mini sods and there's these Ask Yale episodes. So you get to know a lot about me at this point. But I really need to know about you. It's really important, actually, that I learn about you, because that's how I can keep improving and I can make sure that the show is serving you and I can understand the nuances of who the audience is, right? So 
podcast audience survey is up. I really would love every one of you to participate. You can find it at yaeltrush.com forward slash survey. It really isn't long at all or hard. It's very easy. I'll be raffling off a $20 Amazon gift card to those who enter the survey. And again, I really, really appreciate it. It is a great way for me to keep improving and keep um, making this show better for you. If I get a when I, whenever I get a better understanding of of you, and and it's always really nice to see those results. So head over to yaeltrush.com forward slash survey. Will be super super helpful. Our first question is from Lily. How much should you have saved until you start investing? Okay, great question. Thanks, Lily. So in general, investing for retirement, whether you're ever actually retiring from work or not, (laughs) is not something that one should postpone. I know it's hard for all of us to think about this when we're younger, but there's something to be said very, very strongly for the power of compound interest and time is the greatest factor in making our money grow. So the first thing is to start literally from your first job, stashing the money away even before you've gotten a chance to spend it. So before it's hit your checking account so that the money is growing on the background while you're doing everything else. So that means taking advantage of your employer's 401k, having a Roth IRA or opening an IRA or a SEP IRA or solo 401k. If you're an entrepreneur, those are all really, really good ideas. Now, I'm not saying to only invest and then spend everything else that you make every month or get into credit card debt. What I'm saying is invest and at the same time, be sure that you're not getting into credit card debt and that you're saving a cushion of somewhere between three to six months of living expenses. So that's to your question of how much you should have saved before you start investing. I'm telling you to have more of a hybrid approach to this, um, but make sure that 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 is happening, that you're actually saving um, a cash cushion and you're not getting yourself into debt. Now, I said three to six months of living expenses. That really all depends on your risk tolerance, the nature of your career, meaning how fast you can get employed and and many other factors. So some say go up to 12 months of living expenses. And, you know, we had COVID, so we know why that would have been beneficial. I'm okay with that. But I would say having more than than that, than a year's worth of cash of expenses sitting in liquid cash is probably not such a good idea. Now, The other point to consider here is that obviously saving six, eight, 12 months of living expenses takes a while. Even three months of living expenses can be a huge chunk of change. It's quite the sum of money. So does that mean that you don't invest in the meantime? No, it means you do it simultaneously, hybrid approach, and you can contribute more to your cash savings and your investments during the time that you're saving for that cash cushion and then alter your contributions, increase your contributions to your investments, right? So you can take that approach. If you're paying down credit card debt, then similar idea, depending on how much debt you're carrying, how quickly you see you can pay it off, I wouldn't delay your retirement investments, but I would say order of priority is having a savings cushion for periodic expenses so that when those hit, you don't fall back into debt and tackling the debt as aggressively as you can. Obviously, not increasing, so you're stopping to use your credit cards and continue to invest, even if it's only 5% of your paycheck a month. And once you've gotten rid of the debt, then you focus on growing the savings cushion and on increasing your retirement savings contribution. So once both the debt has been tackled, 
the liquidity is there and you're contributing towards retirement, you can also add a taxable brokerage account as an additional way to keep your money growing, money that you, again, money that you might need beyond five years, so medium to long-term money. So I hope that helps, Lily. Keep us posted on how that is going, but no, do not delay your investments. Uh, Make sure that that is happening. And again, understand that you could always add and increase your contribution. Ruthie asks, how to choose a business, a, a business when I have multiple choices or do we need to start a new career to have a good business? Okay, Ruthie, this is such an interesting question. So first of all, you don't need to start a new career to start a successful business. You don't have to go back to school or get new degrees if that's what you mean with your question. In fact, I would almost discourage you from doing that in the first place uh, without having tested this business idea for a while and, and, and iterating within it, right? And seeing if there really are gaps in, in the terms of skills that that really would benefit you to you would gain by by filling those gaps in terms of you know is it going to make a difference in offering a uh, a better um product or service so what i'm saying is let's first try these things out before we make the decision let's not limit ourselves because we might be start serving people and we're learning as we're serving or as we're offering the product or service right and then we're going to see if what we're offering and what our clients needs are will warrant taking on a new degree or a new training or Alternatively, can I hire people who have that expertise that I don't have so that we can complement each other, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to carry the burden of the educational burden. It You might be able to find that in a team that you build, right? So the important thing is to not delay starting. I wouldn't let the, the thought of <clears throat> further education stop you because in business in business the most important thing is to start exactly where you are (laughs) I guarantee you that there are people that need your product or service exactly as you offer it right now and I also guarantee and I know that you will learn on the ground you will learn a ton from serving those people so I wouldn't deprive the world of that because there are people who need it as is and I wouldn't deprive you of the learning experience that comes with the experience of serving and being in business. What you'll learn in terms of what clients need, how to communicate value, how to price, et cetera, et cetera, when you're offering the service of product, um, all of that. When you're in business, that is all far more valuable than any additional degree. So I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't delay starting and I rather, I would rather you take a hybrid approach once you've seen exactly what gap in learning or training needs to be filled, then you can decide whether whether you fill it for yourself or you find somebody else and bring somebody in the team that has that and so that you can fill the gap that way. But you only learn all that when you're on the ground, when you're interacting and listening to your ideal client. And again, business doesn't happen in our head. Business doesn't happen in a business plan. Business happens by interacting with people. So that's the most important element there. Now, in terms of choosing a business when you have multiple choices, well, I'm assuming that you mean that you've played around with different things and that you've been doing and for you've 
for which you've gotten paid. And you want to know which one of those to double down on, which one is the one that I want to focus on. So I recommend that you look at all of those, whatever there might be, two, three things that you've you know been throwing kind of spaghetti at the wall, look at them critically and evaluate them according to the following criteria. Number one, which one am I enjoying am I enjoying the most? Which one lights me up the most? And I feel mostly in my zone of genius, as they say, when I'm doing whatever it is that that is, right? Number two, which one do I see is adding more value and people are generally responding more um, to that offer, right? Meaning that um, I can see that I'm serving a critical need. And by the way, that usually goes hand in hand with the feeling that you have in question number one, okay? And then lastly, number three, which one is better remunerated? So I wouldn't focus on this one first, on the money piece, because not to say that that's not important, it's very important, but there are many ways in which an initial idea that might rank highly in the first criteria and the second criteria that I told you to evaluate can be redesigned strategically or repackaged or offered in a more strategic way where you can change so many things to alter the money piece, the revenue piece of that. Um, You can shift the pond that you're fishing in, literally the market, the client type, you can rebundle offers in different ways. And you know, there's so much that can be done there and where you can very quickly find that the business makes more money. So again, the first step, which one am I enjoying the most? Which one do you see, do I see is adding more value and serving a a, a bigger need out there? And which one is better remunerated? And then we take all those clues and I think that will be helpful, okay? Another great thing to do, but perhaps you've already done it, Um, because you've already been testing ideas. So I assume you've done something similar to this, but still I want to refer to it as doing the Ikigai exercise. I've talked about this on the show before. Ikigai is a Japanese term. Basically, you're asking yourself the following four questions and you're finding where there are intersections of these four. Number one, what do you love to do? Number two, what are you good at? Number three, what does the world need? And number four, what does the world pay for? I've spoken about it, like I said on the show before, it's a fabulous starting point and you can find more information online or even get the book Ikigai. Um, that might be uh, a nice read. All right, next up, we have a question from Anonymous. Anonymous says, my husband and I were sold whole life insurance years ago as a great investment. And only now do we realize that these policies are very expensive and we probably should have done something else. We've had the policies for over 10 years. What do I do now that I realize I have a whole life insurance I probably shouldn't have bought? What do I do with this policy and how do I change to term life insurance? Okay, Anonymous, this is a great question and good for you for noticing this. (laughs) Yes, indeed, you probably should have bought term life insurance, but then again, you know, that's what you were sold. We didn't know better. So, okay, now we have to, you know, we're all growing, right? Before I answer your question, let me just state the differences between these two products because they might be super obvious at this point to, to Anonymous, but just for everybody else listening. So whole life insurance, which is what she currently has, provides coverage for as long as you pay the premiums. And as you pay, you accumulate cash value, which is 
what's considered the investment component of the policy, right? And what's like what they they sell you as this shiny object, because the growth of that cash value is tax deferred, and you can borrow against it to pay for other expenses before death, which obviously reduces the death benefit of the policy. So you know, those things are sold as seemingly very attractive things. So it is often sold as an investment vehicle, when really it is an insurance product. And as such, you're not going to be getting the best returns on your investment. And you should not think of it as an investment vehicle, you should not be substituting your other, you know, you shouldn't be thinking of this as a substitute to your other investments, okay, because this is a complex insurance product and a costly one, that being one of the most important pieces of information here. The premiums for a whole in life insurance policy can be anywhere from five to 20 times more than those for term life insurance policy. And we're talking about hundreds of dollars a month for most people versus less than $100 a month for most people, depending on your age and your health. So If you surrender a whole life insurance policy, your insurer will give you the surrender value, which is the cash value that you've accumulated on the policy with your premiums minus any fees. And there will be fees, believe you me, as they say. Um, And there will also be tax implications. So that's whole. What is term? So a term policy, it's a much simpler product offers coverage for a specific length of time. It's more for, you know, you buy it for 10 years, 20 years, etc. You can extend it. It's more affordable than whole life policy and it's more flexible. You can stop paying premiums and allow allow the term life insurance policy to lapse, meaning the coverage will end and that'll be it. Now, you can't borrow against it, all these things. There's there's no bells and whistles. You're just paying for death for benefits on at death, okay? In terms of better allocation of your investment dollars, you're better off paying for term life insurance, which like I said, is cheaper and using your money to invest in a retirement account. What to do in your case, Anonymous, where you realize you'd rather not have the burden of these premiums and would rather buy term policy. The first step is really to contact your insurance agent because they're going to be able to tell you the details about surrendering your policy. They're going to be able to tell you what is the current cash value, what are the fees, and what would your cash surrender value, that is the cash value minus all the fees, um, what would that be for you? And again, that's going to depend. You said you've had it for more than 10 years. That is actually a good thing in this scenario because um, possibly in less than 10 years, you probably wouldn't have, you wouldn't be coming out of this with a lot. So All of this will depend, again, on the insurance company and the policy itself and how long you've had the policy. What you don't want to do is you don't want to stop paying the premiums because the insurance company will use your cash value to pay the premiums until that money has been exhausted and then cancel the policy. So you basically lose all your money. So you definitely want to first talk to your agent to find out the options. You want to find out Ultimately, if you can use the cash value of your current policy to switch to a term life policy and then end the whole life policy, that would be the ideal scenario. But 
it does not, it's not um, necessary that they allow this. Okay. So you have to do a little bit of due diligence. So it, it this does require some, some phone calls. Now, if, if that switch is not allowed, if you can't switch to a, if you can't use the cash value to pay into a term life policy, then you might be looking at the possibility of buying term and then surrendering the policy, the whole life policy, which again, you want to make sure you're clear on how much money you'd actually be getting back. It might not be much. And also about the tax implications. So the first thing to do is definitely Take the time to make those calls and find out as many details as you can. And I'd love to hear back from you. Keep us posted. I'd love to hear what happens and what you decide to do. And that's a wrap, ladies. Thank you, Lily, Ruthie, and Anonymous for your questions. Keep sending those in via Instagram at yaeltrush, via email, yael at yaeltrush.com. And you can also WhatsApp 832-317-6778 with your questions. And to our reviewer today, Shal31E, be in touch with me and I'll send you a link for us to connect. Everyone, thank you for being here. And please take a minute to fill my podcast audience survey at yaeltrush.com forward slash survey. It really, really will be super helpful. I'll keep the survey open a few more days and then we'll start working on gathering the data. Thanks so much in advance. And as always, thank you for being here. Next up is a fabulous interview and a very funny one with the authors of Stacked, the super serious guide to modern money management, Emily Guy Burking and Joe Saul Zihai. Looking forward to that. I think you will enjoy it. Take a moment today. Friday to light Shabbat candles before the candle lighting time in your city and adding a few extra coins or bills to charity to tzedakah right before you do that. The world could surely use our extra mitzvot and our extra time in prayer. Have a Shabbat Shalom and remember your Jewish money matters. <laughs>